Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. We continue to plant ourselves in this chapter as this chapter brings together all of the lessons and the message of Jonah that God has for us in our lives at this time. Jonah 4, verses 4 to 11. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah, about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down until his head grew faint, and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great City. So over these last recent weeks, we have been studying the character of God's compassion. And we're certainly learning that God is a complex character. This brings us back again to the dilemma, one of the dilemmas that Jonah was having, the theological dilemma of Jonah. How can God relent from judging evildoers? How can he forgive and not punish sin? Many people here in the modern Western Hemisphere are not so troubled by God's mercy because they reject the idea of a God who judges in the first place. They want a God of love, a God who does not get angry at all, but a God who does not become angry when evil destroys humankind and all the creation that he loves is ultimately not a loving God at all. I think we all know that if we love someone, 
You must and you will get angry if someone threatens to destroy him or her. As some have even pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. Miroslav Wolf, who has been seen himself in his own homeland, genocide, wrote that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. He adds that in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will invariably die. So God, if He is God, must punish evil. Then how can He also be merciful? How can a holy and righteous God forgive those who deserve divine retribution? How can God be perfectly holy and yet completely loving at the same time? Many of us share Jonah's difficult dilemma. The God of the Bible is not at all simply a figure of melodrama, smiting the pagans and blessing believers. Rather, he is an extremely complex character. He sometimes blesses believers and judges the pagans. But, but at other times... He blessed the pagans and chastens believers. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is not just being a God of wrath or love. He is both. And in unpredictable ways. How can he be both at the same time? God cannot be compartmentalized. We can't break God up into different compartments. We can't pigeonhole him. We can't uh, label him the way we like to do with so much of our lives and even with each other. We can't do that with God. He does not consist of parts. But all that is in God and His nature is a perfect unity. Even so, understanding this must not be made to flatten or to trivialize or diminish in any way the biblical descriptions of God's emotions. His heart attachment, as we've been looking at last week 
and the week prior. His heart attachment to and his sorrow over his creation. Nor is this meant to undermine the necessity and the reality of atonement if God is going to pardon us. In Exodus 33, verse 18, you may recall Moses asks to see God's glory. God replies that to see his glory would be fatal. But he offers to shelter Moses in the cleft of a rock. To let all my goodness, God says, pass before Moses, though he will only see my back. Then when God shows himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and all God's goodness passes before him, Moses hears God put his goodness in verbal form. God says he is compassionate and gracious, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But then he adds, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, remember Jonah's accusation earlier in this chapter, chapter 4, at the beginning of it, verse 2. Jonah uses God's own words against him in Exodus 34, verse 6. God is compassionate and gracious. I should have known, God, I should have known this was going to happen. It's just like I said. You're compassionate and you're gracious and you're forgiving wickedness and and you forgive rebellion and you forgive sin. But Jonah leaves out verse 7. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This second statement is the part of God's declaration to Moses that Jonah wrongly left out. God said to Moses that he is both compassionate and committed to punishing evil. These are both aspects of his goodness. He says, in effect, here is all my goodness. I'm infinitely loving, and I want to pardon everybody. And I'm infinitely just, and I never let rejection of my love go without consequence, or sin go without punishment. It seems like a striking contradiction, doesn't it? But upon reflection, it can be seen that the single word, goodness, would you say that with me? Goodness, that single word binds these apparently contradictory traits together. 
all of this is God's goodness. Why is it that God must, must punish sin? It's because He would not be perfectly good if He overlooked evil. But then why does God not want people to be lost? Because He's too good in the sense of being loving. He would not be perfectly good if He just let everyone perish. So His righteousness and His love, far from being at loggerheads with each other, are both simply functions of His goodness. He could not be infinitely and perfectly good unless He was endlessly loving and perfectly just. We must also remember and understand that the nature of sin is wired and detonated with its own punishing wages without any action on God's part at all. Or as Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. You can call it the judgment of God. You can call it the wrath of God, I suppose. But sin in and of itself has its own fruit of death and destruction that it brings. It's wired that way. Even so, in light of all of this, we still experience this sense of contradiction. We don't see how God can both punish sin and accept and forgive sinners. We reason either God is perfectly just and then will only love people who obey all the commands, or He's perfectly loving and will overlook a lot of sin that really should be punished. We think God could not possibly be all good in being both perfectly just and perfectly loving at once. If we lived at the same point in redemptive history as Moses or Jonah, we would, like them, see no real way forward. Moses saw only the back parts of God's goodness. It remained a mystery to him, as it was to Jonah. But beloved, we don't stand where they stood. We stand in a new place. In John 1, the Gospel writer has the audacity to say, Jesus Christ became flesh. And literally tabernacled among us. 
John 1.14. Using this term deliberately evokes the story of Moses. Since God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. When we think of the tabernacle, when we read of the tabernacle in the New Testament, we are immediately brought back to the days of Moses. God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. But now John says that Christ Jesus became flesh and God literally tabernacled among us. Paul likewise says that we see, watch this, we see the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed where? In the face of Christ Jesus. The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So, through Christ Jesus and only through Him, we can see all the goodness of God that Moses wasn't allowed to see and that Jonah could not discern. If Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that's how God can be infinitely just. Because all sin was punished there. And it's how God can be infinitely loving. Because He took it on Himself. If you don't believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you might believe in a God who just accepts everyone, no matter how they live or behave. That might be somewhat comforting for you, but is it electrifying or glorious? Or you could have a God who's only just. And the sole way you get to heaven is if you live an exceptionally good life. That might be bracing, but is that beautiful? Does it move you and truly change your heart and transform your life? Only when we look into the gospel of Jesus Christ does all the goodness of God, His loving and His justice pass before us. We're not looking at God's back parts anymore. It is fully manifest in the cross and the face of King Jesus. There is the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ through the Gospel, Paul said. Moses could not behold the glory of God because it would have been fatal, God said. So, I will keep you in the cleft of the rock and pass by and you will just see the back side of my goodness. Jonah could not discern at all the goodness of God in this way. But you and I are privileged because of Christ Jesus to live in 
an age of redemptive history where we can behold all of the goodness of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The goodness and the severity of God. On the cross, the justice of God exacted full punishment for sin. And in the same moment, provided a free salvation to all who believe. It was a severe mercy. On the cross, both the justice and the love of God fully cooperate. They fully embrace. They fully have their way and shine out brilliantly. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. As Martin Luther put it again, as I mentioned just recently, when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, when a person believes in faith on Him, he or she is simul justus a peccator, simultaneously justified, righteous in God's sight, and yet still a sinner. A saint, yet still a sinner dying to sin. At the same time. I've had you do this before. Why don't you do it again? Turn to the person beside you and say to them, Good morning, Saint, whoever they are. Good morning, Saint Sean. Good morning. We are declared saints in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. At the same time, simultaneously, we are sinners dying to sin. And this is the tension and the paradox that we live with. So even though Jonah never receives an answer to his question about how God can be simultaneously gracious and just, Jonah's story exhibits both the goodness and the severity of God in living color. On the one hand, Jonah receives grace upon grace. Perhaps no other Old Testament prophet looks as bad as Jonah. Jeremiah and Habakkuk often struggled with the messages God gave them to convey to the people. However, Jonah literally ran away from the Lord rather than willingly and obediently declare his word, even though he himself was struggling with it. Elijah became desperate enough to ask for death in 1 Kings 19. As we're hearing Jonah's words here, 
angry enough to die. We, we think back. It, it echoes for us the words of Elijah. He became desperate enough to ask for death. But that was because the people had failed to believe his preaching. Jonah also asks for death, as we just said, but it is because the people believe his preaching. Go figure. I know the, as a preacher, the depression that you can deal with at times, and you don't find a preacher too often that's depressed because the people are believing his preaching. It's usually the other way around. For Jonah, he was upset and angry because the people believed. At every point in the story here, Jonah falls lower in the test. Not only than any of the other prophets before him, but also lower than the supposedly ignorant, dark-minded, profane pagans around him. But even so, God continues to save him, to be patient with him, to be gracious and compassionate with him, to work with him. Nevertheless, God does not just accept Jonah and leave him alone. He does not allow Jonah to remain undisturbed in his foolish, wrongful attitudes and disposition and behavior patterns. What does God do? God sends a storm. God sends a fish. Now God sends a plant, as we're seeing here in this chapter. He commissions Jonah again and again and in the end, counsels and debates with Jonah directly. Here we see God's righteousness and love working together. He is both too holy and too loving to either destroy Jonah or to allow Jonah to remain as he is. And God is too holy and too loving to allow us you and me, to remain as we are. His grace meets us where we are and accepts us as we are. But His grace also is so loving and so good and so compassionate that He does not leave us where we are. The book of Jonah then indeed shows us that God is often a mysterious, confusing, majestic, complex character. This is not to deny the historical Christian doctrine of the simplicity of God. Namely, that God is not a composition of parts, but rather that all the attributes 
of God and his nature are ultimately one with one another and in unity together. God does not have a love part and a righteous part that must be reconciled with each other. What we see as being in tension here is ultimately a perfect unity. We believe in one God, as the Nicene Creed says that we confess. One God. However, that perfect unity can be holistically seen only in the light of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. What does God look like in all of this? We see him in the face and in the work of Christ Jesus. To be confused, disappointed, or angry at God? As many of us, if not all of us, if we're honest, have been at one time or another, that's quite natural. But if we remain in that condition, if we stubbornly plant ourselves there, as Jonah did, it will be because we do not embrace the whole gospel of salvation and God's kingdom through faith in Christ Jesus alone. The gospel of which Jonah himself was a signpost. We must notice both the goodness and the severity of God. We must gaze on the simultaneous kindness and the strict justice of God. Beloved, the story of Jonah compels us to both the meaningful, everyday familiarity of God and grace, that, it, that, that He is not removed and distant from us and our lives, but He's ever-present And whether that presence is invoked or not, He's always there with us. An ever-present help in our time of need, as the psalmist says. But the story of Jonah also compels us to the transcendent majesty and mystery and supremacy that is God and grace. In particular, the God of our own creation, whom we have made in our own image, is upended in all of this. The story of Jonah does that. Jonah experienced that himself. He had created God in his own image. And God came along in this story and said, I won't settle for that. And you and I have that same inclination, don't we? The propensity, the tendency to create God 
into our own image. To know Him according to our own understanding. And God says, I won't settle for that. And so we go through experiences and circumstances in our lives that He often uses redemptively to upend the image of God that we have created. You know the one I'm talking about. The God of philosophy, the God who is invoked to solve our puzzles or fill a gap in our intellectual systems. The God summoned to explain everything to us. The God of solutions. The God of certitude who answers all our questions. The God who affirms our own biases, our opinions, the God who feels exactly the way we feel about things and hates exactly who we hate and what we hate. The God of our own illusions. You tracking with me? This God is an obstacle, is an idol of our own making. You see, idolatry is still alive and well in the church and in our lives today. It's not carved out of a wooden image. But it's carved in our minds and in our hearts and in our own false perceptions of who we think He is. He's an idol of our own making that provides us with a comfortable, domesticated substitute to the abundantly incomprehensible Yahweh who is wild and mysterious and overwhelming. The God who, as in Jonah's case, eludes us and subverts us and leaves us reeling so that you're not quite sure what to make of Him. We're not comfortable with God. Perhaps this is why light is such an enduring metaphor and experience of God. Light. Again, to reference the creed. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, In your light, O God, we see light. Light from light. True God from true God. There is a blinding light that is also a revelation. A failure to grasp that is its own kind of seeing. To be awash in an oblivion that is a reminder to remember the wildness of God. God. 
That's what the story of Jonah reminds us of. As C.S. Lewis put it, in the famous story that we are all familiar with, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Aslan, who was the Christ figure in C.S. Lewis's story, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. But he's not a tame lion. To be reminded of the depth of the mystery that is God and grace. And this mystery is not an enemy or an adversary. But it is an entry for us. An entry into God's inexhaustible, embracing majesty and supremacy that can only leave us in a state of wide-eyed wonder and curiosity and worshipful awe. This is our God. 